Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Bill Lipsy, president of Pazina Investment Management, and I'm here with my partner and friend, Rich Pazina, our chief executive officer and co-chief investment officer of the firm. We decided to sit down and have a sort of fireside chat about what's going on these days, given the the, the incredible dislocation of the market over the last several weeks. Um, we've done this before, but mostly internally. We've never had a conversation like that with our, in front of our clients. So we decided to use the podcast um, modality to, to try that. Um, what I hope we're going to cover in this conversation is a little bit about our business, how we manage through environments like this, and then the nature of the opportunities that we're finding and why, as investment people, we think the long run looks bright for deep value investors. So without further ado, let me uh, get started. Um, Rich, let me start with, this is a pretty unsettling moment in all of our lives. We've sent out a whole bunch of notes to clients about the coronavirus, our reaction to it, the company's reaction to it, what we think are major risks. Um, give me a sense as we sit here today of how you're feeling and what your perception is of how the company's doing. Thanks, Bill. Um, I, look, we're all dealing in things that have no precedent and in our lifetimes. Not that we haven't been through financial crises and market crises, but now we're talking about a health crisis. And so this is, this is uncharted territory for almost every executive in the country. And so what are the things you think about? You think about the health of your employees um, and making sure that you have the capability not not only to run your business, but to be supportive of those that um, may have needs that, that you can't even imagine. You think about the health of your clients, um, both the financial health as well as their, as their physical health. Um, think about your responsibilities from, from a societal perspective of trying to not spread this disease. It's an interesting country we live in where, where we have a, a, a individualistic free market society where the reaction has come from not the government leaders as much as it has from the business leaders who have all been thinking about these issues way before the governments have gotten involved. Wow. Thanks. It's, um, it is. You said something that really strikes me. You called this uh, a brand new experience for all of us. And it does make me think about how you react in a crisis. You know, we've been in business now 25 years. Of course, neither of us looks like we've been in business that long. We, we look much younger. But... Um, we have gone through pretty severe crises in the past. How do you compare them? How do you think about this one relative to past? Well, if you go 
this will be, I'll call it the third crisis that we're facing as a business and as an investing organization um, since we started. The first one, obviously, the first one felt the worst because um, we were in a, a, this was the internet bubble I'm referring to particularly, where our investment performance was flat. We didn't have any declines, but we weren't participating in this massive boom. We were a young firm. Um, we had just really achieved profitability for the first time before all of a sudden the markets went nuts with internet stocks and we sat there doing nothing. And we got to the point where we were 6,000 basis points behind the S&P 500 as a brand new firm. And you sort of think, okay, we gave it our shot. Um, we lost the startup capital of our seed capital providers. We maybe are out of jobs, but it wasn't the end of the world. It was we were young and we would start over again. And I think that's how we thought about it. Um, and now, and, and, and in the end, we got it right. So, so it made our business, right? And, and actually what made our business was being calm on the investment side just going back to your roots and saying, you know, what do we do? We look for companies that, that are misvalued in the stock market because of panic, because of fear. In this case, in that case, it was the fear of missing out more than it was the fear of failure. But it was some of that, too, because if you remember back then, the things that were weak were Western manufacturers that were going to be obsolete, right, because... The Asian competitors had much, much lower costs, and the internet was going to enable the world to order from Asia at lower cost, and therefore, what do you need a Western manufacturer for? And we thought that didn't make any sense. Um, and, and so we bought and we persevered, um, and, and, and then our business took off. Then we had the global financial crisis. Way, we were way more established in business. We had an and a, a large block of assets under management. We had a big number of employees who relied on us. Um, and we actually had failure in the underlying businesses that we, that, that we invested in. So from a pure business perspective, investment perspective, that was the worst crisis that we experienced because we got several things wrong. Um, and what we got wrong was that there was actual some failure in the companies we invested in and permanent impairment. And that's made us much more sensitive to that. Um, this time, now, it's, it's interesting. We also start from a position of financial strength as a company so that we can um, weather a fairly significant downturn in the markets, in our assets under management, and not have to deal worry about not being able to take care of our employees or laying anybody off. We have a much, much bigger cash cushion on our balance sheet. We don't have any debt. So we don't have any financial pressures that, that exist as a firm. The technology is way better. And fortunately, we have an operations team and a technology team that 
led me in the realities of this situation and prepared without my direction for exactly what's happening. And so now when I finally caught up and realized, you know, we're not gonna be able to do this the way we've done it in the past and work together in a physical space, um, the transition's been almost seamless to working remotely. And, and the technology today is good so you can have personal connection on your screen, looking at people eye to eye and continue to, to run the business. So we have a similar investment opportunity where we're, we're much less focused on the, we're, we're focused on everything now, but we're preoccupied with the health side of it. Right, right. Let me, let me pick up on something you just talked about and, and, and ask you to go a little deeper. One of the things I observe about what's changed is reflected in your answer to the prayer question is we are a much bigger firm. We're a more complicated firm and we've got really young employees, many of whom have never been in the investment business when the markets weren't soaring. And now all of a sudden they're being confronted with what looks like a panic and a crisis and a disaster. How do, how do you think about managing young, particularly young research people who are embedded in that kind of an environment? Well, look, the research from a research people perspective, it's really not that difficult because um, we have vested in the firm I don't know what the count is of people that have more than 15 years of investment experience, but it's got to be at least 10. Yeah, I think and it's over 10. It's over yeah. 10, <laughs> yeah. purely investment people that, that have been through this with us. So one thing is there's nobody worried about trusting us. They know how we're going to behave. And therefore, they're behaving in a similar fashion. They're saying, what do I have to do to get through this? I'll do whatever it takes. And if that means some financial sacrifice, okay. But it, it also means that I can lead and I can, sh I can stay calm and I can focus and, and, and get people excited about the opportunity. And, and, and what's, what's really interesting is, I mean, we can use, we can maybe get into some specific examples before, but I, I, I went in to, the, 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 uh, to a meeting this morning with one of our newest analysts who happens to be covering AIG, and AIG stock has fallen, I don't know, two-thirds by two-thirds. And what did I hear? I heard, I don't really get this. The... I can't, I'm trying to think of what all the risks are. Are they worried about mortality risk from the life insurance because people are going to die and they're going to have to play out claims? Well, I don't know. They seem to have just as much of annuity business that benefits if people die. Am, uh, am I worried about interest rates being too low and therefore they can't make enough money to pay the life insurance claims? I can't see that because they've matched their... So my point is I can go into details of a company, but that's what they're doing, right? They're leading this. And, and the best thing in the world is to get emails or texts or phone calls from a young analyst who said, I just saw this happen in the marketplace and 
it is not consistent with my understanding of the market. And I confirmed of, of the company, and I confirmed that that's right. We should be exploiting this opportunity. So how do you explain that? Only by the leadership demonstrating that this is how you behave and the investment team falling into line and having also having the natural instinct that that's what you're supposed to be doing. They know that's what they signed up for. They came to work for us because this is what we do. Right, right. That's great. First of all, it's really great to hear that you're having that experience with one of our young analysts now. And um, I'll say I see it all over the firm in each of the groups. These young folks are looking at us and saying, I want to be like them. I want to be calm. I, w I want to see this as an opportunity and not only as a near-term pain. Talk, go into a little more detail, if you would, about the, um, the impact on our business. Because, you know, I remember during the internet bubble, we, like you described, thought about, well, maybe this wasn't going to work and we'll have to go find jobs. And then all of a sudden, nine months after it popped, we were at the top of the heap. Right. Um, and then in the financial crisis, um, we actually did have to terminate some positions because the business had shrunk. Um, talk, talk a little bit more now about in an environment where the markets are down by about a third all over the world, how that's impacting us and how we're thinking about the future and running our business. Well, look, a, a couple of things happen differently when you have 25-year record of doing the same thing for your clients. They know how you're going to behave. And so it's been quite gratifying to us that the amount of inflows that we've had in the last few weeks or a month have been as big, if not bigger, than the amount of outflows that we've had. And while there might be a different mix, because we see more in the sub-advisory channel where it's a retail client base that there's more outflows, but in an institutional client base, we're just seeing the inflows. People are doing what they're supposed to do, which is to reallocate towards the managers who have underperformed if they continue to have faith in the managers. So I only take that as a sign that we've earned that respect and faith from our clients, that we will behave in a way that you can predict and that we'll use the best resources and judgments that we have. Doesn't make us perfect, but at least the clients understand. Now, from a, from a financial perspective, we have the luxury, right? We actually could weather a substantially f bigger decline in, in revenues before we would even have to think at all about making expense cuts. And the odds that we have to staff cut staff, you know, we have one of, the, one of the good things about running a business that's had some success is some of your senior and senior talent, uh, and that senior talent goes beyond the founders now, make a lot of money, and they get big bonuses. And they are tied into the firm. They understand that some of the, the financial success that they've had is because of our good fortune, which means that they're not going to insist on making that money when there's other people in the firm who are either newer or don't make as much money 
and and we're not gonna gonna think about reducing staff or cutting pay for the the broader team. So I, it's a nice position to be in. We have a huge amount of financial flexibility. You know, perhaps we'll we'll curtail some of our growth initiatives, but beyond that, the the financial condition is strong. And I think I should also mention that our cash balance, I mean, if you look at our total liquidity, our cash and our receivables and our investment portfolios, we could run for a long, long time before we would actually experience any stress. Right. It's, it's um, look, you and I have had this conversation a lot of times over the years, but I have to say one of the most rewarding parts of our business having some success in being 25 years old is seeing how the next generation of leaders are taking on the mantle of responsibility. It is, it is really exciting and um, bodes well, I, I believe, for the future. Let me, let me move the conversation to research. Um, and I'm, I want to put out a, a couple of questions that I know we're getting from clients as well as consultants right now. So I, I mentioned this a minute ago, the, the U.S. is down in the neighborhood of 30%, Europe's down a little more, Japan and, and Asia are down also about 30%, emerging markets a tiny bit less, so it's bad. Um, so here are some of the questions. Clients are asking, how do you deal with these intense declines in your portfolios? You talk a lot in your work about range of outcomes. In a world where there's seemingly a new uncertainty, how do you bound range of outcomes? And one more, what are the new opportunities that are opening up as the world is, seems to be imploding? Well, look, I'll start by, by range of outcomes. The reality is that when we think about range of outcomes, we think about the range of outcomes of the underlying business that we're investing in, and not the range of outcomes of where the share price can go on any particular day. Because the share price can go anywhere on any particular day. That's, we, we, we've known that forever. So we don't get flustered by the share price movement. We get flustered if the business turn if we've misanalyzed the business, and it turns out to not have the not be bounded by the constraints that that we're looking at. And these are long-term constraints because we understand that it's the near-term dislocations that give you the opportunity to succeed in the long term. And so, you know, going back to AIG, when I see AIG at twenty dollars a share, and I still believe that the long-term earnings power is, you know. Six dollars or more, I think. Really, I can make I can make thirty percent annualized returns if I forget the next year or two. Because who the hell knows what the 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 earnings are going to be in the next two years? But if I buy it at twenty and it earns six dollars a share forever, except for the next two years, how how do I possibly lose on that? I don't even know if I exactly answered your question, but I'll stop there. Right, right. That's, that, that definitely addresses the range of outcomes in something like AIG, where we've got a lot of history examining AIG. All right. 
One of the th one of the special reports we put out to clients a few days ago uh, responded to the collapse in oil prices that happened after Russia and Saudi Arabia uh, refused to make nice. And so I'm curious how you're thinking about that right now, because oil prices have actually fa fallen further. And uh, I'd love to hear you talk about the nature of our holdings in energy and what we're thinking about the future holds. You know, our exposure in energy over the, over the last year has shifted from the oil producers to the oil service companies, the drillers and service providers, to the oil industry. Um, now, obviously, when oil prices collapse, people stop drilling. Um, it's what happens every time. It's not. It's because they don't have any money, and nobody wants to give them money because they're afraid they're not going to make any money. It's not that complicated. Um, the problem with the oil, or the benefit, depends how you want to look at it, from a market balancing perspective, it's a benefit, is that if you don't drill, the supplies dwindle fairly rapidly. And so there will be an, kind of a natural response to this from the supply side. The demand side, yes, we're in a period where nobody's going anywhere. Where air, and, but by the way, everybody's still ordering on Amazon, so the trucks still have to keep running. And uh, it's just that we're not doing, call it, superfluous travel. Um, so there will be a demand reduction, for sure. Um, but what's interesting is the supply reduction is probably going to be bigger than the demand reduction. It takes a little bit of time, so there'll be a short period of time. And so the question is, is there any long-term impact on oil demand? It's hard to see how there is. I mean, we have all the issues that you're aware of, which is moving to, um, to electric vehicles and all of that, but that's a fairly distant into the future impact. Even if you're the most optimistic um, viewer of the electric vehicle penetration, you, you, oil demand won't peak for another six or seven years, and, that, and that's, that's with aggressive adoption of electric vehicle technology. And don't forget, you still have to make the electricity so hydrocarbon demand's not going to peak for a long, long time to come. So somebody's got to drill. And so we're buying drillers. Interesting. Let's just take Halliburton as an example. In 2016, the oil price fell to $30 a barrel. Halliburton stock collapsed to $50 a share. Um, this week, the oil price dropped to $30 a barrel, and Halliburton collapsed to $7 a share. Um, an amazing to me difference in that. So the question is, is Halliburton going to survive this? Do they have the financial resources? And when you analyze it, they're still cash flow positive. Um, they're cutting their capital spending dramatically. They're doing what companies do. And they don't have debt covenants that would cause them to default. And they've termed out their debt for a long enough period that if this demand shock is modestly temporary. And one thing we don't know is how long this is going to be. Whatever people speculate, nobody has any idea. So to say this is going to be over in four weeks is irresponsible. But to, to say that um, it for sure it's going to be over in six months, I don't really know that either. Um, but, but to say that permanently, nobody's going to drive their car and go to work and go on vacation, uh, 
That seems an illogical conclusion. And so the question is, do they have the staying power to make it through? And that's where we've been focusing our analysis. You know, you just mentioned something that uh, reminds me of conversations you and I have had for our whole lives. And that is, what don't you know? And so I'll say, as an investor, one of the things that's marked you, and I think marked us, is we're very respectful of what we don't know or can't know. One of those that we get reminded of all the time is timing, just like you just mentioned. However, there are some patterns in how markets respond to cycles. Would you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about this cycle about how you think about when we get asked, well, how do I know when to go into value? Yes, value is so cheap, it's extraordinary, but how do I know when to go in? And so would you talk a little bit about how you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, no one knows when to go in. And so for me to, t to say that I know, it, it's just not reasonable. Um, but having said that, Markets are anticipatory mechanisms. They're not coincident mechanisms. So when the economy is good, everybody thinks about the next recession. That's what they think about. And so they, they're fearful of owning cyclical stocks when the economy is good. Very interesting, um, but especially when the cycle has gone on for a long period of time because inevitably there's a downturn. And when we, by the time we get into a recession, people are thinking about when's the recovery going to happen. So this speculation here on, oh, we're going to reception, a, a recession, this is particularly bad. Well, it's true, but it, it, it's not impossible already to say we're not in a recession. We are. I don't know how many months or quarters it's going to be before the government data show it, but by the time it shows it and we're in the middle of it, we're going to be looking for signs that it's over. So obviously the coronavirus is the leading issue here. So my view is value cycle and cyclical cycle is going to recover way before GDP recovers. It's going to recover when, they're, when we start to see a slowdown in the infection rate. We don't have to see a decline in the infection rate. We don't have to see the end of the cycle. We just have to see the this, this slowdown, and then everybody's going to start forecasting what happens next, which they won't know either. Um, so timing that, I have no clue. All I know is as the values get cheaper, you should be in increasing the exposure. It's what I'm personally doing, and thankfully, it's what many of our clients are doing. Okay, great. I, 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 I'd be remiss if I didn't ask that you speak a little bit about something that we've become associated with for most of the last 10 years, and that's financial stocks. That's banks in particular. And so, you know, banks, it's funny, we've, we've talked about this with our clients a lot over the past number of years and how they've actually recovered, and yet their valuations hadn't yet recovered, and now they've been hit again with the market considering them as though they're going into financial crisis mode again. Could you talk about yeah. one or two uh, uh, banks? Well, yeah, let, let, me just, let me just mention something that I, 
hopefully this is correctly attributable to Jamie Dimon at, at um, J.P. Morgan um, when asked about the valuation of his company. Um, he said, well, I guess I should be hoping for a recession because that'll be the only way to show people that the value bank is misvalued. And here, I, not that getting your wish is a good thing because this, <laughs> their stock price has gotten killed, but I, I, I think when we try to stress test the banks, I mean, we're just looking at, um, at Citibank, right? Citibank has a big credit card portfolio. So this is one of the things people are clearly afraid of, right? People not being able, losing their jobs. Mostly people pay their credit card bills when they have a job. And so if you look at the history, it's the unemployment rate that's highly coincident with um, the, um, the loss rate on credit cards. So if you look at about the last financial crisis, the global financial crisis, the U.S. unemployment rate hit 10%. You know, we're at 3% now. So what if it's 10% or what if it's worse than 10%? Well, you know, if it's 10% and you use the last financial crisis as a guide, Citibank will still be making money this time in, in a financial It won't even tap into its capital. That's the remarkable thing. Now, it could be worse. So we, we actually looked at a case where it was twice as bad, meaning the unemployment, I don't even know what that means, but people draw down their credit card debt twice as much as they did last time and have twice the losses that they did last time. And then you go into a loss for Citibank, but you, you can't, it, I shouldn't say you can't, to impair their capital below a level that would be considered adequate or satisfactory is, is a very, very big long shot. Now, now, remember, the reason the banks failed in, um, in the financial crisis was mostly liquidity. That's right. They didn't have the money, the liquid resources to be able to stay open and they had to to seek help. Well, the Fed is on that and they've already clearly opened the window to saying um, if people draw down their credit lines and you don't have the liquidity to fund them, give give us a call. No penalty. Um, this. So I, I think the liquidity is going to crisis. Clearly, the government understands the playbook that you can't let liquidity dry up. Um, and so for us, then the question becomes one of capital and loan losses. And, you know, you take Citibank. Citibank stock is under five times earnings. That's that's a tw and, and that's a 20 percent um, yield. And it's under five. Now, those earnings may dry up. There may be some extra loan losses. There may be some pr pressure on net interest margins because short-term interest rates have gone down. Um, but the normal level of earnings of Citibank is mostly unimpaired. And so we think you can buy this franchise for under five times normal earnings power in a, with a normal loan losses and normal net interest spreads and a strong capital base to get through this and buying this at half the price that you paid six months ago um, for, a, for those kinds of franchises seem, seems to me to be as much of a no-brainer as, as it comes. Um, 
we don't have any of the spike up in the singular, obviously the spike up in volatility in the market, but we had a singular spike up in volatility of the banks in 2007 and 2008, which is not happening this time. So that means the market participants are as comfortable as they are with other stocks about their ability to finance. Um, and they may be slightly more uncomfortable because they're levered and all of the things that people worry about, and therefore the stock prices have fallen more. But we're not in the realm of, I don't know anything, and the stocks are all over the place like they, they were in 2007, 2008. Great. Rich, is, uh, I, I'm going to wrap this up, but is there anything that I haven't asked you about or that you've been reflecting on that you'd like to mention? Look, the, the, we've been spending the, the second half of this conversation talking about the investment opportunities, and, but I, I guess it's worth reflecting that we have clients who have needs for the money that we're entrusted with, whether those needs are for taking care of the retirees of a, of a corporate or state or government pension plan, for an endowment or foundation that funds great things, it's very important to us that we be their partner and that we understand the pain that they're going through. And I do, and I think about that a lot. And so while all we can do is to do our best to try and, and earn them a high return over the long term, um, it's hard not to feel the pain of your clients in the moment. And that's on my mind all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just want to um, reflect on, on what you've said about our clients uh, because I spend my life thinking about our clients as well. And one of the things that's um, uh, clear to me is that we've been privileged in our lives to have the commitment of clients. And I think the reason they've committed to us now over a long period of time is they know what we're gonna do. You said something early in this conversation that um, we remain calm. And I'll say having a steady hand, not only during crisis, but having a steady hand during periods of exuberance is just as crucial. And I, and I think that's what's happened to us over 25 years. So I wanna thank you for allowing me to have this conversation with you and uh, thank those who are listening. And uh, we look forward to receiving any questions you have. We'd love to continue this dialogue. Great, thank you everybody for listening. <laughs>